This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Sound check, testing, is it okay, clear? Okay, good. So this, the text for this morning, we're going to look at, uh, well, somewhat uh, look at case two in the Mumon Khan, the gateless gate. This is Hyakujo and a fox. I'll just read the case and then comment. So whenever Hyakujo delivered a Taisho, uh, which is a Dharma talk, a certain old man was always there listening to it together with the monks. When they left the zendo, he left also. One day, though, he remained behind, and the abbot, Hyakujo, said to him, Who are you? The old man replied, I'm not a human being. In the far distant past, in the time of Kashapa Buddha, I was the head of this monastery. On the occasion On one occasion, a certain monk asked me whether an enlightened person would fall again under the chain of cause and effect, and I answered that they would not. Because of this answer, I have for 500 lives been reborn as a fox. I now beg you to release me from this fox body by saying the turning turning words on my behalf. Then he asked the abbot Hyakujo, can an enlightened person fall again under the chain of cause and effect or not? And Hyakujo answered, they do not ignore the law of causation. The old man immediately awakened and made his bows, saying, I am now released from rebirth as a fox and my body will be found on the other side of this mountain. I wish to make a request of you. Please bury me as a dead monk. Hyakuju had the the head monk strike the clappers and inform the others that after the midday meal, there would be a funeral service for a dead monk. Hyakuju led them to the foot of a rock on the far side of the mountain, and with his staff, poked out the dead body of a fox and had it cremated. In the evening, Hyakujo ascended the rostrum in the hall and told the monks the whole story. Obaku, who was a senior student of his, thereupon asked the following question. He said, This old man made a mistake in his answer 
and suffered rebirth as a fox for 500 lives. But suppose every time that he answered, he had not made a mistake. What would have he become? Hyakujo replied, just come closer to me and I'll tell you. Obaku went up to the abbot, Hyakujo, and slapped him. Hyakujo, clapping his hands and laughing, exclaimed, I thought that the only Bodhidharma's beard is red, but I see that you are the barbarian with the red beard. That's the end of case number two. So traditionally, this story is taken up as a koan in our tradition. Um, and koans, as many of you know, always point to the same thing, which is the non-dual nature of reality. And each koan elicits duality. And in this case, you could say one of the ways it does that is, does a person fall that's enlightened, fall under cause and effect or not? Duality. And so when a student works on this koan and doksan, there are lots of points that get covered. Um, but today I want to focus on the central point of that this case is getting at, and that's this subject of karma. Uh, karma is, is one of these Buddhist Sanskrit words that has made its way into English and is now pretty commonplace among people that even know nothing about about Buddhism. Uh, but like the word Zen itself, it's often misunderstood and misused. And and karma is a difficult subject. Actually, it's it's probably one of the most difficult concepts for Western, modern, Western Buddhist practitioners to accept. And in some ways, it's uh, even the idea of no self is, uh, is easier to understand with the discoveries in psychology and neuroscience that are showing how we are simply processes So, as modern people, um, we have a hard time accepting things, taking things in, unless it's unless it is confirmed by science and rational thought. And in ancient times, karma was seen as a sort of spiritual um, spiritual debit or credit debit and credit system. It was about rewards and punishment. We get what we deserve. And in in many forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, the law of karma was sort of seen as a spiritual shoots and ladders. Uh, Anybody that remembers that game. Uh, Spiritual practice, in a lot of ways, was a way of gaining merit. It was a way of hopefully doing things in our lives that would create optimal conditions for favorable favorable rebirth uh, and not to not surprisingly 
the favorable rebirth that people had in mind was to be reborn as a man. And then to be reborn in such conditions that one could become a monk and practice diligently and hopefully get off the wheel of birth and death. So when, you know, many, many, many people come to Buddhist practice in the West actually seeking refuge from some sort of oppressive religious tradition that they came up in, dominated by their own notions of reward and punishment and heaven and hell and all of these things, superstitious beliefs of one kind or another. So it's understandable that when we hear about karma, we, well, karma and rebirth and reincarnation, the impulse is to reject it out of hand. But I would, I would actually argue that karma might be one of the most important teachings for modern American practitioners to work with. Simply, simply put, karma means action. Uh, but it refers to not only action, but what happens from our actions, cause and effect. And in classical Buddhism, karma is the basics, basis of, of ethics. You know, what we do, how we act, what we say, what we think, all influence us and influence others. And the Buddha used the idea of karma, which at the time had already been well-developed and accepted in the culture. He used it as a way of explaining the, the central point of spiritual practice in his view, which was to end suffering. He said essentially that, as you know, most of us know, that our suffering is caused by our craving, craving and clinging to our ideas, to our, to people, to things. And in our attempts to satisfy our cravings, it works temporarily, but those cravings, those desires are quickly reborn. And so again, what we do is we try again and again to, to satisfy these endless desires, not knowing that really what we are caught in is this endless cycle of pursuit. And in that pursuit, we create patterns. We create patterns, habits, fixed ideas, and these patterns gain a kind of momentum to them. They can, uh, they can be difficult to see and difficult to work with. Uh, they become difficult to interrupt. In Buddhism, these patterns and habits themselves are the basis of what we call self. And so the Buddha used the image of birth and death, rebirth, to describe this kind of momentum that cycles. 
In Zen, we see rebirth as a powerful metaphor for the cyclical nature of craving and the pain that it causes. But we also see karma as a practice. And that's what I want to emphasize. Zen practice, in essence, is a pattern-interrupting practice. It's, a pa- it's interrupting the cyclical patterns that go on unconsciously and create our problems. When, when we read about karma in Buddhist texts, it mainly centers around individual karma. You know, what I do, what I say, what I think, all influences my future. And so, classically, the practice revolves around me, or you. It becomes about sowing seeds for positive thought, positive action, positive speech that reduce negative karma and ultimately helps us find some sort of liberation from our suffering. <clears throat> and we can, we can speak of karma in terms of what's called direct karma and indirect karma. And direct karma, I think, is pretty simple. If I, if I put my hand over a hot stove, it's going to get burned. Cause and effect. But that kind of understanding of karma is limited. Of course, we all want to understand what leads to what. And why. If I do this, I can expect that. And so, many people use this model as a way to work on themselves with the hopes that if they do the right thing, things will go the way they want. The problem, though, as we all know, is even when we do the right thing, say the right things, think the right thoughts, we still come up occasionally with the short straw. Things don't go our way. And so this is where we recognize that our perceptions about cause and effect are limited. That a part of karma is hidden from our, our ability to see it, to experience it. Or not to experience it, but to see it, to understand it. And so we talk about karma also as indirect. And that acknowledges the intricacy of cause and effect. It recognizes all the unseen forces that impact us and that are impacted by us. It also recognizes that karma unfolds over long periods of time, through generations. When the Buddha laid out the Eightfold Noble Path, one of the Eightfold path is, one of these facets is called right effort. And we talked about that, I think, last Tuesday, or maybe it was the Tuesday before, about the importance of right effort is guarding the senses. 
being careful what we take in with our minds and what we, because what the Buddha recognizes that everything we take in through our senses it, uh, act like seeds that are deposited in a storehouse. And we don't know when those seeds will germinate and perhaps fruit. Sometimes they lay dormant for long periods of time. So this idea of indirect karma is recognizing that things are having an influence on us and we're having an influence on others and and the world in ways that we can't see. But both direct and indirect karma are important to understand. They're actually not two separate things, obviously. We just speak of them in that way. But the the important thing, again, is in Zen uh, that we recognize the importance of working with karma. We practice with our karma. We do that first and foremost by taking responsibility for our lives. If we want to change, we have to make it happen. In Zen, this acknowledges what we call jor riki. People who practice and dedicate their lives to change do see change. They do see their lives become more attuned, they become more sensitive to suffering, more aware, more willing to help. It becomes more difficult to lie, more difficult to steal, more difficult to take life. Because we see, through the practice, through experience, we see and we feel the subtle ways that things affect us and affect others. We become attuned to the subtle shifts of unskillful behavior, thoughts, and speech. And so we take up the precepts, And together with sitting practice, they create the basis for a life of practice. And so this is joriki, taking responsibility, this self-power. But there's this other side in Zen, which is tariki, which is other power. And tariki, to me, in in the context of karma, simply means that, again, we don't know, we can't understand all the outside forces that are at work. Aristotle once said that the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. And the Buddha talked about the importance of not trying to figure it all out. He said, conjecture about the precise working out of karma in the world is an unconjecturable that is not to be conjectured about. That would bring madness and vexation to anyone who conjectured about it. How many of us have tried to figure out why something has happened in our life, some kind of event or painful thing, and just racked ourselves, driving ourselves absolutely crazy 
trying to figure it out. What did I do? So the Buddha is warning us against that obsession. So in Zen practice, we do two things. Uh, We often talk about the first, which is not knowing, and we embrace it. But we also then understand how can I under, we also then say, how can I understand this further? So we practice with it. What am I not seeing right now? What might be influencing me? So we get curious about it, but not attached to the idea that we can figure it all out. Of course, the fundamental Buddhist teaching is that we're not isolated individuals. And this is why, in addition to individual karma, there's also the idea of collective karma. Uh, Groups have a certain karma. Cities have karma. Countries have karma. Institutions have karma. So this recognizes that no matter what we do as individuals, we're embedded in these larger karmic systems larger patterns that are in operation. And some of these systems benefit other some people, while other people are neglected. Some systems help, and some systems oppress. And many people are waking up to some of these systems that were previously unseen by many. So as a practice, the practice becomes about embracing some of the previously unacknowledged karmic roots that have been in operation, for example, in since our country's founding. Taking responsibility for those. That these systems are often hard to see. They're hard to know. They're hard to know what to do about. And therefore, they can be hard to accept. Especially when our primary lens, the way we've learned to view the world, is through the the idea of the, the power of the individual. Individuality can be such a powerful, empowering concept. But at the same time, it can blind us and contribute to the blatant denial of these larger influences. And our country is wrestling with its collective karma. The karma of slavery, the genocide of native peoples, Jim Crow laws, the redlining that happened in the, you know, after World War II. The inherited wealth that many of us have in place, white privilege, intergenerational and collective trauma. We can't escape it. In the classic Buddhist teaching, when we reach enlightenment, we get off the wheel of cause and effect. But what does it mean to get off the wheel? This is the rub. 
We don't escape. So if we went back to our story from today, in the beginning, with Hyakujo and the old man, the old abbot, at some point in the past, was asked about whether the enlightened person falls under the chain of cause and effect. And he answered, no. And because of that answer, he was reborn as a fox for 500 lives. So, just a small point of context that foxes in that time were not seen in a good light. It wasn't a positive thing. They were often seen as wily and uh, kind of like the in the Native American traditions, uh, sort of as uh, pranksters. Tricksters. So this is, in one way, you could say that this is his uh, karma. We that he couldn't evade it. He couldn't evade his mistake. Although a lot of us dream, I believe, hope that we will be able to evade karma. One one contemporary teacher uh, speculated that we envy villains in movies and cartoons because somehow they evade getting caught. And uh, there's a part of us that really enjoys that because they get away with something. They evade karma. And the same goes with Magic spells, you could say, and superheroes. Because they all seem to defy cause and effect. And many people believe in a similar vein that if we were to become enlightened, we would somehow bypass cause and effect, the pains of life. We'd be on easy street. And this is the false promise of the American dream as well. It's magic. It's not real. Just like the former abbot in our Fox story, who said that the enlightened person doesn't fall under the chain of cause and effect, as a country, we've tried to deny our collective karma. For way too long, the mantra has been Every individual has the opportunity to have the American dream. What's the point of talking about the past? Can't we just move on? Let's just move on past this stuff. Let's forgive and forget. But we can't just move on. That's not possible. That would be trying to evade the law of cause and effect. Our karma always comes due. And this is what I think a lot of people are starting to realize. The hidden cost of something. We've avoided hidden costs in this country since its beginning. Consumerism is another example We get cheap goods, and yet we don't see the true costs of something. But it is being paid somewhere. 
Maybe not right now. It's not apparent to us right now. But it's an immutable law. In Zen practice, the way we transcend something is not to escape it. We're not looking for an escape route. The way we transcend something in Zen is to become it. We own it. We become responsible for it. As one, as Daito, uh, Daito Lori Roshi, who passed away uh, a while ago, once said, he said, we take responsibility for the whole catastrophe. In, in our Jukai ceremony, where we take the precepts, the first thing we do is take responsibility. We, in, in one version, not the version that we use, but I, I like this version in terms of this talk today. One version says, all my ancient car- twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. So this is the beginning of taking responsibility. So in this story, the old abbot recognizes this error, and then he asks Hyakujo, the current abbot, he asks him for a turning word. And by this, he's, what, he, what that means is he's asking for a teaching. He's saying, turn my mind from delusion to enlightenment. That's what a turning word is. And for a long time, oppressed people and others have been telling us that we are deluded, that America is deluded about the deep, structural, unseen roots of racism and oppression and its long, historic karmic arms. It's not just individuals who are racist. It's structures, institutions, policies, and assumptions. In a book called White Fragility, Robin uh, D'Angelo says, when a racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control, it is transformed into racism a far-reaching system that functions independently from the intentions of the self-images of individual actors. So for many people, this is a new idea, something that at first the reactive mind wants to resist, wants to deny, argue against. I'm not a racist is the, the immediate result, response I'm not a racist. But racism and karma, as is being pointed out, is not direct, it's indirect. It's complicated. So Hyakujo, he says something simple, very simple. He says the enlightened person does not evade the law of cause and effect. One turning word, and the old man is released from his fox body, from his delusion. So sometimes when our mind is ripe, meaning when it's ready, when it's ready for change, that's all that's needed is a slight turn of phrase. 
But for most of us, unfortunately, our ship doesn't turn so quickly. Things don't sink in so easily. But when they do, that's the opportunity for practice. When it sinks in, we can turn from our delusion. This is the beginning of liberation. When we own, become our transgressions, and we take responsibility, then we can do something about it. Just like the old man who was released from the fox body. When we own it, we can work with it. We have to work with it. But this takes kind of a courage, doesn't it, to do? But but hopefully, your Zen practice, daily sitting practice, gives you courage, begins to give you courage. Because in sitting still, we're learning to sit in the fire of uncomfortability. I mean, anybody who's sat knows that it's difficult to sit still with our own minds, to not ignore things, to face ourselves. And in that uncomfortability and responsibility, we find a gift. So it's not this just this heavy burden. You know, sometimes Zen can come across as this heavy, self-examining practice. But there's also a gift in that. Because when we take complete responsibility, we feel a greater connection. I mean, just look at your own life. When you've admitted a wrong, when you've kind of come to grips with something, it's kind of feel, it feels freeing, like we lighten our load. We're not spending energy trying to deny something. And so we can feel that greater connection, that greater love. And that's what the Buddha, I believe, is pointing to when he talks about working with our karma. And so to end today, I just want to reiterate this metaphor of connectedness that I think is applicable applicable to our situation in this country and how some of us are in denial about it. This metaphor of Indra's net. It was an image, I think, again, that predates Buddhism, but the Buddha used it. The image is that there's this net that stretches out infinitely in every direction, and at each intersection of the net... There's a jewel. And because the net is infinite, the jewels are also numberless. And when you look closely at each jewel, you see in its reflection the reflection of every other jewel. And so if you look closely enough at any jewel, you see everything. All infinitely present and connected with the other. The whole is present in every part, and every part is present in the whole. And not only that, but every moment 
past and present and future is also reflected in every other moment. So as we begin to take responsibility as a country, we don't say that the past is the past. Let it go. It has nothing to do with me now. The past is living right here. So, thank you all for listening today. And let me open it up if anybody would like to ask questions, uh, make comments for a few minutes. We can do that.